So, as you've gathered today, we're continuing in our series on the Minor Prophets. And you've probably also heard us call it the, the Book of the Twelve. We keep doing that uh, because we think it's important. Uh, because these, these twelve prophets that we you know, generally refer to as the Minor Prophets, they were originally compiled into a single scroll. They were all written as individual books, but the Jewish people decided that there was, there was something valuable in seeing the, the flow, the story of what was happening in them. So they compiled them into a, a single scroll. And that means there's a, a plot to the way they've laid it out. There's a direction that each of these prophets is kind of moving us in. And together, you can kind of see, if you look back at the last few weeks, the way it's all unfolding. And that's not something we generally do. Again, we see them as this sort of piecemeal group of, of prophets, very short books a lot of times, and, and we're unfamiliar with. But you can see the plot, the direction kind of unfolding. If you think back to, to Hosea, where we begin, Hosea opens this story that's being told. And Hosea is really kind of helping us identify what is at the root of so many, or if not, you might say all of Israel's issues, and that is idolatry. There's this problem, this penchant for idolatry that they have. They worship the gods of the nations around them. And they treat Yahweh as if he's just one among a number of gods to be worshipped. They do not worship him exclusively. And Hosea is saying because they get worship wrong, they get everything wrong. It's a reminder for us, right? If you're getting worship wrong, you're going to get so much else wrong. And Joel comes next, Joel points us toward the necessity for God's intervention in the midst of all of this. Here is all this brokenness and sin and idolatry and God must intervene. God is the judge. He is just. We can trust him. He must intervene. He reminds us of, of the day of the Lord, remember? Amos comes along. He, he shines a light on the injustice and oppression that has come to characterize God's people because they have drifted further and further from Yahweh. And so these things, oppression, injustice, come to characterize them. You go further, and in the last two weeks we've been in Obadiah and Jonah who kind of turn our eyes away from Israel in some sense and toward the nations. But what we realize is that even as we're turning toward the nations, it's a it's about Israel still. There's this question we find ourselves asking. What are we supposed to do with them? Because it's not just Israel that's guilty of sin and injustice and oppression and idolatry. There are all these nations around them. And they've done terrible things, even terrible things to Israel. What about my enemy? What about the person who's hurt me? Jonah begs us the question, what are you to do with the nations? How are you to approach the nations? and your enemies. And today we, we come to Micah. And I think really Micah is, is helpful because he reveals a whole new dimension of Israel's sin and brokenness that we haven't really seen so much at this point, if you think about it. it, it it's been there in the background. There's an awareness that it's been going on. But it's important what Micah's doing. He really kind of hones in. Micah reveals that this sin... He, He's referring to, that all the other prophets are pointing us toward, that they're being accused of. It's not just limited to some of the people in Israel, not just some of God's people. It's all the way to the top. 
There's a problem all the way to the top. It is systemic. It is institutionalized within Israel. Idolatry, sin, brokenness, it's there. And here again is an, a, a sort of source of so many of their issues. Their leadership has run afoul, right? Their leadership is problematic. People like judges, and magistrates, priests, prophets, these people who've been given authority to lead them have led these people in the wrong direction, in this sinful direction. It's not by mistake that they end up where they are. It's because they've been led there by someone. And it was all just for selfish gain, is the sense Micah gives us. They want power. They want money. And so for that selfish gain, they're willing to lead the people in these wrong directions. And we see these kinds of scenarios playing out all the time around us. And a kind of political corruption and moral failure that we so often see, Micah's reminding us, it's not new in the history of the church. It's not new in the life of God's people. The struggles that, and the sort of cynicism sometimes we feel toward the church, that's not new. It's always been there. Corruption has always been there. Moral failure has always been there. You look back and you see it over and over again. And I think What's so beautiful about Micah is that he's not just introducing us to a whole new dimension of Israel's sin and brokenness. He's introducing us to a whole new dimension of God's redemption. That's what he's doing. He's holding these two things side by side so that even as we find ourselves overwhelmed with the sin and brokenness of humanity, simultaneously we're reminded of how vast God's redemption is. He holds those two things in tension. He keeps bringing them before us. Even as he's, he's kind of putting Israel under the microscope, right? And what they see as they peer in is ugly, right? Yet at the same time, he's offering us this sort of telescopic vision to see beyond their present circumstance to what God is doing in the midst of it, how God is going to redeem them even through all of this. Yes, Israel's circumstances are bleak, Micah is going to make that clear. Everything that is most precious to them, they are going to lose. Jerusalem will become rubble. Nothing is really left for them. And yet, even though they will have no kingdom to speak of, no king left to lead them, God is working a redemption. A redemption is coming, a rescue for God's people. It, it's coming. And I, I think it's there that you really begin to see the gospel of Jesus in Micah. You can kind of see what's happening. Sin overcome by redemption. Judgment being overshadowed by the hope that is to come. And, and death ultimately being overwhelmed by life. It's gospel that Micah is, is holding before us. These two things in tension. So what I want us to do, I want us to begin today uh, in Micah chapter 3. We're going to jump around to a few passages. And we'll read verses 5 through 8 in chapter 3. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. 
The sun will set for the prophets, and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. You can hear in Micah, right? Something we're very familiar with. It's not hard to connect the dots here in this passage because we've become so familiar with this. We know it. These kinds of situations, they play out every month or so, every year or so. Something comes along. Micah is is highlighting false prophets in that particular portion of chapter 3. But in the rest of the chapter, if you read the rest of chapter 3, he's confronting other leaders, magistrates, judges, people who've been given authority in Israel. Priests, even, are called out. And we get it. Because we've seen it all. It all really kind of makes sense to us. There are still people who are leading in this kind of way. There are still corrupt leaders. Moral failure is still so common. There are still people who call themselves prophets. They take upon themselves the title of prophet. And their message is still, if we're being honest, largely determined by how well you feed them. We know that. Like you, You see that happening, right? There's an ulterior motive so often. And you know this. You've seen it. These people who will say just about anything just so long as there's an audience for it. As long as, as there are likes to be had, viewers to be found, right? They'll say anything to grow their brand just so long as it sells, right? We're familiar with it. We get it. We have to be honest. We kind of become cynical toward it ourselves. And I think the thing you have to realize to understand why that's become so prominent in Israel at the time is that these, these aren't prophets of other gods, Right? That exists. You probably remember that from the story of Elijah. Elijah has this kind of competition almost with the prophets of Baal. Right? These are not the prophets of Baal or Ashtoreth, right? these other Canaanite gods that other people around them worship. No, these are prophets who proclaim the word of Yahweh. And yet they're doing this. Many of them were likely at one point genuine prophets, gifted of God, but now they've abandoned their calling for something more gratifying, you could say, more profitable. That's the sense that Micah is giving us. It's just a more profitable endeavor. Because again, here's the clarifying thing. Why would they do such a thing? Prophets in Israel are not well liked. No one likes to see a prophet coming their way. Why? Because generally prophets don't say the thing you want to hear. They're going to tell you the thing you need to hear. And sometimes it's really painful and it's really uncomfortable, right? That's that's what prophets do. These prophets, on the other hand, they're well-liked. That's who they are. They're even preferred over somebody like Micah who's going to tell you the hard truth. They want someone who tells them what they want to hear. And we know it. We see it in our culture. We are the same way. We want someone to tell us what we want to hear. We're obsessed with the idea of, of the prophetic. We don't even realize it, I don't think. But like, think about it. Like, How many people we look to for predictions, right? Like on, on Wall Street, you want someone to tell you that that stock you just bought is about to explode because they know what the market is going to do. Right? They're the, the sage who knows what Wall Street's going to do. We want them to tell us what we want to hear. 
This time of year, there are people who will read whatever, go to whatever website, listen to whatever YouTube personality, whatever commentator is going to tell them who's going to win the championship. And we want them to say, my team. Say it's going to be my team. Because then I can feel like I'm not crazy. My team's going to win it all. Say it. We're going to win it all, right? That's what we want. Even like Wednesday, meteorologists, guys, we want them to tell us exactly when it's going to start raining and exactly when it's going to stop raining, okay? Preferably now. Please stop the rain. Say what I want to hear, that it's going to stop now. And they're like, eh, it's going to be a while. Your phone keeps vibrating and telling you there's more flooding coming. There's more rain to come, right? Hashtag, maybe meteorologists are false prophets. Um, man, th those guys catch a, a hard break, don't they? But uh, like, Honestly, these guys have, have made prophecy more attractive in a world where prophecy is generally seen in a pretty negative light at least the way Micah's doing it, okay? So they've made it more accessible. They've made it sound better. And Micah is painting a target on their backs. Micah's calling them out. It's like he's saying, you know who you are. Here's looking at you, guy on YouTube, who can not just tell you whether or not Jesus is coming back this year, but also who the next president's going to be, right? Here's looking at you preacher who has a way of, of appealing to his largest donors while ignoring the marginalized in your midst. Here's looking at you, politician, who will agree to just about any policy so long as it appeals to your base, right? So long as it gets you reelected, right? Micah's painting a target on the backs of these people, these leaders who have found lying to be profitable. It just works. It's so much better than the old way that they had learned for so long, so much more appealing. They have led Israel into sin and idolatry because Israel wants to believe the lie they're selling. It's what they want to hear. And even if it's a lie, they want to believe it. And it's like God is, is saying through Micah, the thriving business is about to be shut down. God is going to shut the mouths of the prophets. Therefore, he says... Night will come over you. It's all this darkness and light imagery, right? Night will come over you. The sun will set for the prophets, and the day will go dark for them, for there is no answer from God. It's hard to be profitable as a prophet if you have nothing to say. And these are men who are gifted at hearing the voice of God, right? That's the sense that we get. Again, these guys aren't just like pretending. These are men who are really gifted in the, the art of prophecy. And yet now, they're twisting it. And God is saying, no, I'm, I'm taking my voice from you. You will hear nothing. You'll have nothing to say any longer. God's going to bring an end to their prophets. They'll have nothing to say. God is going to go completely silent. God's silence is a, a frightening thing. They will find themselves fumbling around in the dark, trying to make sense of what is happening. This is what's coming for these false prophets. Those who've been put in positions of and authority, who've led them the wrong way, they're going to be deposed, he says. It's a whole new dimension of, of their sin and brokenness. And yet Micah has this incredible vision still for what's next. 
As you move into the next chapter, he begins to kind of open your eyes to what God has in mind for the future, for his people after all of this. And it's important for us to see it. It's verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. This is that whole new dimension of God's redemption. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So it's like we've just swung from one end to the other, right? The pendulum has now swung toward redemption in this beautiful kind of way. And it's, it's hard to call what Micah is, is speaking of a restoration. Because... This new kingdom, he's talking about God establishing. The one that he is describing is better than any kingdom they've ever known. It's not like God is just restoring Israel to its former glory. No, this is an entirely different kingdom. It is so much better. And it is so good, he says, that the nations around them, all these people from all these foreign places, are going to come streaming toward Israel in hope. It's this amazing image, right? But if you think about it, the nation streaming toward Zion, toward the mountain of God. Everywhere else we've seen so far in the book of the 12, that's, that's generally not a good thing when the nations come streaming toward Israel. When Assyria comes streaming toward Samaria in the northern kingdom of Israel, it's bad news. That kingdom is, is gone. We don't ever hear anything from it again. When the Babylonians come streaming toward Judah and the city of Jerusalem, there's nothing left. They're carried off into slavery. Or think about in the book of Obadiah we talked about recently. The nation of Edom comes to Jerusalem only to celebrate the downfall of Israel. It's not a good thing generally, but Micah is saying, no, now the nations are going to come to Jerusalem to worship. I, I think we all get... Um, even from just the, the vaguest of kind of background study, that mountains in the ancient world were, were sacred in the eyes of the ancients. They were places of, of worship. They were important. They were kind of thin places, as we call them, right? Where the veil between heaven and earth is thin, right? God seems to be nearer in that place. Mountains are sacred for them. And so when, when Micah says, all these people will come streaming toward Yahweh's mountain, when he says that, that Zion will be the highest of mountains, he means the nations are going to recognize exactly who God is. He's the God above every other God. His mountain is exalted above all these other mountains where they are worshipped. They're going to come to hear the word of God, to learn his way, that they might live as his people. It's this incredible picture, right? The nations streaming toward Judah, 
toward Jerusalem, toward the temple, to worship Yahweh. And it kind of gives new meaning if you think about it. It gives new meaning to what we see so often happening, uh, especially in, in Advent, as we, we, we speak uh, of the, the wise men. But we'll get there. There's more Micah wants to, to say, really, about redemption. Like, he's going to push it even further. Because one of the saddest aspects of everything that's about to happen and all this destruction is that not only do they have no kingdom any longer, that means they have no king. Leadership is, is gone, right? They have no sense of direction. And if you read, we didn't read this, this part of, of chapter 4, but there's a question he poses in verse 9. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Micah's getting at this. If there is no kingdom any longer, the king is gone as well. But one of the, I think one of the places in the book of Micah that's really familiar to us is what he's going to say next. If you read into chapter 5, right after he says all of this, in chapter 5, verse 2, there's this familiar line, right? But you, Micah says, Bethlehem Ephratah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. That's a familiar story. Micah's a little obscure. Some of these prophets are obscure, but we know that story, right? Micah's bringing us to this manger in Bethlehem. Micah is bringing us to King Jesus. He's bringing us to, to this baby. He wants us to see it, right? Again, it gives new meaning. When we think about the wise men, they come from these foreign nations bringing gifts to Jesus. They're streaming towards Zion. They're coming to worship the God in flesh, the king that has been promised, right? It's a story we know. God is going to establish a whole new kingdom, and he's going to give them a whole new king. It's not going to be just a restoration of the former glory of the kingdom they've known, but a far better king and a far better kingdom. Not only is God redeeming Israel here, right? Again, Micah's opening our eyes to the reality of the nations themselves being redeemed. And that's what God had always intended. If you, if you read Genesis, you know this. You've probably heard us talk about the, the, the promises made to Abraham. One of which was that Israel, his people, would be a blessing to the nations. It's tremendous. But somewhere along the way, it's as if it was forgotten. There was just enmity between them and the nations. There was a sense of fear that characterized their relationship with the nations. But now Mike is saying, in the same way the nations will come to hear the law, they will leave changed, right? Similar to what we see happening at Pentecost, right? Here's the celebration of this tremendous festival. They're all gathered to worship. Jewish people from all over the world coming from different parts of the Middle East, all gathering, converging on Jerusalem and then they experience the reality of the Spirit. And they leave there changed, right? Something incredible happens. They're transformed forever. And what Micah is saying is that the sin and the violence, the brokenness and idolatry, the injustice and oppression that has characterized the nations for so long, it no longer will. They are becoming God's people. God is going to redeem even them. And there's this line you've probably heard from Isaiah before. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into to pruning hooks. Right? We're familiar with it. Micah's saying they're going to turn their weapons of war into gardening tools. They're going to reforge their weapons. 
They're not going to be warriors any longer fighting for their lives and for survival. They're going to become gardeners. It's a picture of peace, right? They will no longer cultivate war. They'll cultivate peace. And I think for us, that sounds good because we live in a world that is so thoroughly influenced by those kinds of words, right? But diplomacy as we know it does not exist in the ancient world. War is just a reality of the life of an ancient. They just, they see it the same way we see natural disasters. It's just a thing that happens. It's part of living in this world. It's going to happen. It's the way the world works. It's simply a fact of life. And yet Micah says, everyone will sit under their own vine and their own fig tree. No one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. Right? That, that's a pretty powerful statement, right? It's this image of poverty being eradicated. Not everybody has their own land. Not everybody has their own fig tree, their own vine, their own sustenance. And Yahweh is saying, poverty is going to be eradicated. There's something incredible happening. None will be afraid. Like fear is a part of their lives. Every time they get a piece of land, every time they have something of their own, they're aware that at any moment it can be taken from them. That's the way the world works. Micah says they're going to live there in peace without fear. He's doing away with fear as a way of life for Israel, for his people. God's going to free them in this way that they maybe never expected. It's a whole new dimension of redemption, right? But having seen the depths of their sin, as you look at it in Micah 3, having seen this whole new dimension of God's redemption, the full scope of what God is doing, the people of Israel find themselves, like us, asking a question. Well, if, if this is all true, what exactly am I supposed to be doing in the, the meantime, right? In the in-between, what am I supposed to be doing? I live in the awareness of my, my brokenness and my sin. What am I supposed to do in the midst of the waiting for this full redemption that God is promising? How exactly are we supposed to live now? That's the question that Micah kind of brings us to in, in Micah 6. So if you guys want to open there, this is probably the most familiar verse uh, in, in the book of Micah. We know it so well, I think. And it's Micah confronting that question that we all wrestle with. What exactly is my life supposed to look like in light of these, these promises that are being made? This is uh, verses 6 through 8. He says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There's this sense as Israel's wrestling with this question that they, they feel like all they know to do is really come back to the same old religious pattern that is characterized their existence, right? God gave us this, right? Should we be making sacrifices? Like, should we be doing some extravagant act of worship in this moment? Is that what we're supposed to do? 10,000 rivers of oil, thousands of rams. Should I give my firstborn? A thing God never asks. They're saying, like, what are we supposed to do? Do we need more extreme 
more severe kind of versions of sacrifice? Is that what we're supposed to go to? Because honestly, that would be far easier, right? If there were just a simple prescription for how many sacrifices I can make to make things better. God, just tell me. 10,000 rams, my own firstborn? Is that what you're asking? Would that make everything better? And that would be so convenient, right? Saul made the same mistake. There's this story in, in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel has given the king, the new king, Saul, instructions for what he's supposed to do after this battle. And the thing he's not supposed to do, what he's supposed to be waiting on, is for Samuel to come before a sacrifice is made. But Saul assumes that since sacrifice is good, he can do it. And so he makes a sacrifice. It seems like a small thing to him, but Samuel shows up and realizes things are not right. He's not done everything that God has asked him to do, and he's done something God did not ask for him to do. And there's this word that Samuel speaks to him. He says, obedience is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And you might remember from Hosea uh, weeks ago when we were there. In Hosea 6, he kind of tweaks that statement that Samuel makes. He says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So obedience is better than sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You might remember those words from Jesus as well. Jesus liked what Hosea was saying, what Samuel had said. He applies it to the religious establishment of his day, who has the same solution, right? Maybe if we just held to the law in a more strict way, maybe if we just did more stuff, if we tried to be better, then everything would get better. We, we want that. We want an easy list to check off. That's what we want Jesus to be asking of us, right? A, a very simple set of rules a list that we can check off day after day, things I can do to be a better human being, to be more like Jesus, a simple set of commands to repeat. What do I need to do to make it get better? And Micah says, it's not quite that simple. In the meantime, it's like Micah is saying, embody the character of Yahweh. That's, that's not as simple as, as, you know, a little list of commands. It's not as simple as making sacrifices. Take on the nature and character of Yahweh. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Like if you, if you think about through the, the book of the 12, where we've been so far, God is portrayed as the only one who is just. He is the judge. He's the only one who can make things right. And Micah leads by saying, be just. What are you supposed to do in the meantime? Act justly. Live just lives. Embrace that. Just as Yahweh himself is just, we as his people must be characterized by that. We must make justice manifest in this world in whatever way we can. No, we're not going to be perfect at that. But how do we make this, what feels like very abstract and impossible concept of justice how do we make it manifest real concrete for those around us rather than passively turning a blind eye to the injustice and oppression that we see around us and just assuming it's ubiquitous at this point there's nothing that can be done about it the church is a space in which we speak to those injustices 
We make the church a place where those things are being addressed and acknowledged out loud and mourned, right? We speak to those things. We act justly. He says, love mercy. And it's it's actually kind of interesting, that, that translation. It's the best way they can translate it because literally it means love God's steadfast loving kindness. In some sense, it's two different words in Hebrew for love. Love, love. Embrace God's brand of love. Embrace the steadfast, patient, enduring, loyal love of God. The word is hesed, right? Embrace that steadfast love of God. Let it characterize the way you approach the world around you, the relationships that you have. Love his loving kindness. And he says, walk humbly. That doesn't mean what it, what it sounds like, though. I think we hear walk humbly, and it's like, oh, so it's like I, I just need to make less of myself. Like, this is not about false modesty. This is not about self-deprecation. Humility is neither of those things. It's something else. It's, it's more difficult, right? It means something like, like walking wisely, walking discerningly, walking with understanding. That word for humility means something like understand your place in the story of redemption that God is telling. Understand the, the, the story and how you fit into it. There's a humility that comes to that, recognizing, yes, I have a part to play, but it is a, a small one, right? Walk in humility, knowing that what God has in mind for me is better than what I have in mind for me. I can't live any longer this self-centered existence where I'm just seeking my own security and my own comfort, my own pleasure. No, to walk humbly means I begin to approach things differently. I understand the place I play in this story of redemption. Walk humbly, he says. I mean, that's, that's easy enough, right? Just act justly and love mercy and, and walk humbly. Except it's not. And we fail at it regularly. And Israel fails at it almost immediately. There's this sense in which what Micah's asking seems like like too much. They fail at it just like we do. And I think that's why it's so important. That's why I didn't want us to just read Micah 6. I think Micah 6 is so beautiful. But I think that's the part that we know so well. You need to see everything else Micah's saying too. To get a a sense of, of, of who he is. Micah 3 and 4 are so important in bringing us to what am I supposed to do, right? What do I do? Before all of that, there's what he's saying in 3 and 4. The hope for Israel, the hope for the world, is not that the people will live as God has called them, that they'll finally become better, that they'll just be better people. The hope for the church and our world is not that we'll just be better. It's more than that. We want it to be that simple, but it's not. Yes, that's what we're after. Hopefully we are being sanctified. Hopefully we are being transformed and changed. Yes, that's what we're after. Taking on the the character of our God. Walking as Jesus did, John says in the letter of 1 John. We ought to walk as Jesus did. And yet, all of that is predicated upon what Micah says earlier. Acknowledging our deep sin and brokenness. And acknowledging that what we need is a newer, better kingdom and a newer, better king. Micah brings us there. You need a king and a better one than you've ever known. 
You need King Jesus, right? He, he keeps bringing us to this place. And that king will make manifest the justice of God. He will make manifest the mercy of God. He will make manifest real the humility of God. Every time we come to the table, we're seeing it. The justice and the mercy and the humility of God. The cross shows you it is an act of justice, one that we deserve, and yet Jesus is taking the justice we deserve upon himself. God is flipping justice upside down on its head because he is so merciful. We are seeing mercy in the cross. The painful, enduring, long-suffering love and mercy of God who would offer his own son who would suffer himself for us, right? We are seeing in the cross humility. As Paul says in Philippians 2, Christ has humbled himself even to the point of death. This is what we're seeing. Justice and mercy and humility modeled for us. And hopefully, as we move into this moment of worship, as the band comes, we invite you to come to this table. And, and the sense that we get, the reason we do this week after week, year after year, is because we're hoping that as we partake of the body of Christ, of his blood poured out for our sins, we are becoming more and more like him. We learn that justice. We learn that mercy and love. We learn that kind of humility. It comes to characterize us. That's the hope. And so we invite you guys in these moments. There's bread here. Uh, there are cups here as well. We even have some, for those of you who are a little uncomfortable, uh, tearing off a piece of bread uh, from from a, a loaf that everybody else says, we get it, it's a pandemic. So we have uh, some kind of portable ones. I don't know what you call this, um, but it works. We've been using them for months and months now. And if you, you feel uncomfortable, please do grab one of those uh, and we'll continue in worship. So come down, uh, make your way down one of the aisles uh, and they'll play uh, some music and I'll come back up and we'll partake together. Let's pray. Father, we pray you would teach us the full depth of our sin and brokenness that we might more fully understand the depth of your redemption. God, we pray that yeah, you'd be giving us a vision, Lord, that we might, might see the full scope of what you have in mind for your good creation, for this good world that you made, and for us as your children. And fill us with hope rather than cynicism and anger. Fill us with peace rather than anxiety and, and worry and fear. And we trust you. We continue to believe you are good. You're exactly who you say you are. We worship you in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.